Uh, This morning, I don't actually have a particular text because, as this series has proven throughout, this is really the magic decoder ring for the whole Bible. So the whole Bible is my text today. (laughs) But what we're going to do now is finish up our covenant series, uh, looking at what covenant has to do with worship. What are these two things? How do these two things play together? What's the connection? So before we do that, though, before we open God's word and consider uh, his instruction about worship, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord's day. We thank you for the Lord's service. We thank you uh, for the word of God, for your son who descended and ascended and returned to you. Sending your spirit, Lord, to dwell in our hearts and our minds, and we pray by his power now we would comprehend the fullness of your goodness and grace to us in worship and in covenant. We thank you and we praise you in your son's name, and amen. Now, you know, worship is a word that is misunderstood as the word covenant. What is worship? You know, if I'm sitting at home and I'm looking out the window and I see the butterflies flitting by like I did yesterday, I felt as if I were worshiping, because I was giving thanks to God for such beautiful things. And that, that is worship. That's worship. But I think what, what happens is then we get a little confused when we come here and we have, you know, I'm wearing this tie and I have this printed message and I call this worship. And, and so what happens over time is worship, it gets a little confusing as to what we mean. Now, why are we here? Why are we here on a Sunday and not a Saturday? Why are we singing at a wall? <laughs> This big, beautiful brick wall. We all stand together, staring at it, singing. What is that all about? Why do we have various men reading and preaching and leading us in confession? Why confession? Why are we doing it indoors and not outdoors? Why are there drums, a drum and piano and instruments? What is going on while we are here this morning? Now, worship doesn't adequately express what it is that we're doing here together as a group. God's covenant provides the key. It always does. Um, As Doug Wilson likes to say, you know, we're accused of having uh, covenant peanut butter. Everything is covenant in the reform world. And I agree with that. I do have covenant peanut butter. Just kidding. Um, And so when, when you start to say covenant is everything and everything is covenant, well, then that's meaningless. But, but it's the key to understanding so much of scripture and so much of our history. Covenant is the key to understanding what we are doing here, why we're here, and what we're doing while we are here. Now, priests offered service to the Lord. That is what worship means. The word worship means service. Adam was commanded to serve the Lord in the garden. It's, it's no coincidence that later the priests were commanded to serve the Lord in the tabernacle and temple. And so service is worship. So again, you run into the same problem. Well, Earlier this week, right, if I, if I was out and I help an old lady cross the road and I'm doing this service, is that worship? Well, yes, that's also worship, just like my looking at the window and giving thanks to God for the butterflies. And, and, and that's helpful to know. All things are worship. All things are serv- service is worship and worship is service and everything is worship. And every- See, but after a time, it all becomes a little circular and a little confusing. The continual offering of animals in the Levitical system was to continually renew God's covenant. That's, that's something about them that we don't understand. Why were they constantly chopping up animals? Well, think about everything that we've learned. There's these covenants of promise that are cut for our, us and our whole household. And so they constantly have to cut up animals again and again and again and again and again in order to continually cover the blood or cover with the blood the sins that they had committed to renew the covenant. Because, right, you, can, you, you go into the temple, you go through the whole service, you cut up the animal, you cover the sin with the blood, and you walk out the front door of the temple and, and, and you yell at your wife, right? Just like here after the service, we go through all of this. And how many of you guys have gone home and had an argument with your spouse, in the car, right? You don't even wait till you get home, right? We, we sin immediately. And so what, what happens is we violate the covenant. And so, so the Old Testament system recognized the sinfulness of man, and, and the sacrificial system said, okay, you're going to have to sacrifice animals night and day, all the time, nonstop, constantly. And, and the reason was to, re, to renew covenant, 
to get back into fellowship, to get clean, to get right with God. And so on Sunday mornings, we're not just here singing. We're not just here worshiping in the same way that I am at home, looking at the butterflies. We are renewing covenant. That is what we are doing. Now, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took up the cup and said, this cup, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He was making a new covenant. And why do we then repeat those words every week? This is, I think, the most, the, the, solid, the most solid argument for weekly communion. Because if we're renewing covenant, and he's, made, he's cutting the covenant in his own blood, he's holding up this cup and he's saying, that's what we're doing, we repeat it every week because every week we're renewing covenant. Now, what we're not doing, what the Roman Catholic brothers and sisters would say, is that we're re-sacrificing Jesus in perpetuity. Every week we bring him in here and crucify him again. Okay? That's not what we mean. Okay? It, it's, it's been done already. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 14. I wish it was just as easy as printing off a copy of Hebrews and sending it to Catholics. It's not that easy. But here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. They already have it. Yeah, they already have it, yeah. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we don't need to do it. It's been done. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father now because what did he say? It's finished. However, right, we, we take that one sacrifice that he did, and what we're doing is constantly applying it. When I get on my knees and I, and I say, God, I have sinned against you, please forgive me, cleanse my hands, cleanse my heart, the, the blood of the, of the once-for-all sacrifice is, is added, is, is touches me again and heals me. It cleanses me again. It cleanses me again. And, it, it, and it's not like I have to go find a bullock and kill it and say, okay, now I'm going to take this blood and do something with it, right? Because that's what they were, they were doing something with the animals. We don't have to do that because we have the once-for-all sacrifice that we're constantly applying. Every time we baptize someone, we're applying it. Every time we take communion, we're applying it. Every time we confess our sins, we're applying it. And we're, we're, but how do we come, right, before the face of God? In the Old Testament, you had to kill animals and have a sacrifice. Well, we take this once-for-all sacrifice and we bring it before God and we say, hey, where are those people you died for? And we are now capable of coming into your presence. And all of this is what's going on on Sunday morning. We're applying the same sacrifice over and over and over. And, and if you think about it this way, then you start to think about worship. Okay, so in the, in the various portions of the service here this morning, we're taking the blood of Christ and we're, we're doing different things with it throughout the service. Just like in the Old Testament, they would, they would slaughter animals and do something with the blood. And each time they did it, based, based on what kind of animal it was, what kind of time of day, all these things, they applied the blood in different ways to cleanse the people, to unite the people, to bring the people before God's face. And so what we're doing is in one service, we take this once-for-all sacrifice and we apply it in exactly the same ways they applied the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Now, that's logically what is happening. Now, I learned this years ago, and I'm still trying to figure it out, because it, it's very hard for, I mean, this is, Jesus has called us to something higher. He says, now you worship in, in truth, right? Now you worship in spirit and truth. So I'm spiritually taking the once-for-all sacrifice, and I'm truly adding it spiritually to my, and, and then you're like, wait, what? And what we, what we do as modern churches, we've lost all these elements, right? The, 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 burnt, the whole burnt offering is different than the peace offering in the Old Testament. And so when we're applying the blood of Christ in different ways in our lives, we're applying it in the same way they applied blood in the Old Testament, for different things. But we just lump it all together with, okay, we're sinners. Christ died for us. And so now we're not sinners anymore. And it's just this one application. But there are lots of applications for the blood of Christ. And what we do is we come in here in multiple ways in the same service, we walk through these same steps every time with the same sacrifice, going through the same process every week, renewing our covenant with God. Now, there are a number of covenant renewal services in the Old Testament. Now, the whole Levitical system is about covenant renewal, but there are occasions in the Old Testament where God's like, hey, let's renew this thing. Let's update it. 
And, and, and if you look at Genesis chapter 9, Exodus 24, Leviticus 9, Nehemiah chapter 8, which was read for us today, all of those chapters, the service looks almost exactly the same. And oddly enough, it looks exactly like ours. So that's where it becomes very explicit. All these covenant renewal services are structured very similarly throughout the Old Testament, and they look an awful lot like what we do here on Sunday morning. Why? Because we're doing the same thing. We're renewing the covenant. We're coming here saying, we've broken it, but you, you are ours and we are yours, and so let's renew it. Right? It's not something that expires. <laughs> it's not like if you, if you flip over your covenant here this morning and you see that there's an expiration date on it like your milk. That's not what happens. What happens, though, is you violate the law of God. You go out and you do not obey his will. You go out and you, and you do not love your neighbor and do not love God like you're supposed to. And boom, what do you do? What do you do at that point? Well, modern Christians just think, oh, I have this relationship with God. It's fine. Everything's fine. I, I'm, no, you've got to go to church and you've got to renew the covenant. You go there and you come before the Lord God and he takes the blood of Christ and he applies it in these various ways and you go out then into the world, brand new Christian, every week, fail again. No, no. <laughs> it's true, right? And then what happens? You come back. And, and this is the reason that we have to argue for continually staying in, uh, keeping the worship service central to what we're doing and con- continual. This was the, the problem during COVID. Is, is there were lots of arguments about it, but, but, but this central argument was really hard to make because you have to explain so much. It's like, I can't go three weeks without renewing the covenant with God. He's told me to come back and to renew it with him. So now we're at an impasse. What do we do? Right? And, and part of what that whole experience was was figuring out how to renew covenant in a way where we all don't get arrested by the state. But this is why it's important. It's not important simply because we, it's, it's just important to us personally. God has called us here to apply the blood of Christ in various ways to clean us, to send us back into the world. Now, how does the service always end? How does the service, every time we are here, it ends with what? What's the big thing at the end? A meal. Now, if you go to the, the book of Leviticus, and, and, and you go to these covenant renewals, like the one we heard about today, right? What, what, what did they, he say at the end? Go and eat and drink. Well, why did he say that? Because they're renewing covenant. You don't really renew covenant without eating and drinking. Eating and drinking, there, there is a particular sacrifice you would offer, and it was different than the other ones. And, and th- that one, you actually ate some of it. And the reason that you did that, it was, it was like Passover. You're demonstrating the fact that there's peace between you and God, because you only eat with people you're at peace with. I don't know about you, but there are people I am not at peace with, and one of the ways that I demonstrate this is I will not eat with them. I won't even chew gum in front of them. I'm just like, nope. Uh, we are not at peace. And, and so every week, one of the sacrifices we have is this, this, this peace offering. We demonstrate at the end there is peace between us and God. We are, we are sitting here at his table because we have complete fellowship, because we've gone through these stages de- applying the blood of Christ in various ways to make us clean and at one with the Lord God. Now, the reason for this is because this is always how covenants work, but it's the ultimate goal of all humanity. This is the other argument for why you should do communion every week. Because what we are going to do eventually is go to the great communion in the sky. And here, here it is in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult in the glory, for, uh, give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now there's a lot there I'm not going to explain. But you see, he sees the marriage supper of the Lamb, and what does he want to do? He wants to worship. This helps us. We come here, and, and, and it, it, when I think about these things, when I come through the, the door, when I see these things sitting here, 
I see the marriage supper of the Lamb. I, I'm, there is the table set before us in the midst of our enemies, and, and I want to fall down in worship. And, and that's, that's why we, we keep it here. We don't keep it in the back where we don't see it. We're not one of those churches that keep it in a side room here and bring it out when it's ready. We set the table because this leads to worship, just like in the book of Revelation. You see it and you want to worship. And where we are all headed as the people of God is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, so this, this, is, this is one of those sermons where I just went through the whole sermon. Okay, now I'm going to go through the whole sermon again, but in greater detail. Because there are a number of theological ideas that I have to explain. And, and they, they have, you know, theological names, but I'll try to make it as fun as possible. Okay, one of the things I want to explain is called the regulative principle. Everyone say that with me. Regulative principle. Now, by good and necessary consequence, the proper worship of God can be determined from the scriptures. Put simply, the regulative principle of worship is the idea that obedience equates to worshiping God the way he requires and not by tradition or man-made invention. Now, if you go back and you read the Bible carefully, what happens to the people of God? Several times. God comes and he says, what is this that you are doing? I did not tell you to do this. Right? Think, think of it, even Aaron's sons, the very first people to worship in the tabernacle, two of, two of Aaron's sons died because they, they didn't go through the steps properly. God doesn't like it when we worship him in some other way. Now, the Lord Jesus has come. He's made it abundantly clear, like Samuel and other prophets, that ultimately, the, if you go through the motions and your heart is far from God, it doesn't matter. Right? God hates hypocrites worshiping. He, that's what the prophets tell them. Why are, you, why are you coming into my house with these, following all these rules when you hate me? And, and, and because of that, I hate you. So, so there is this great balance always that we have to keep. There are specific steps, quite clearly. Right? If God is going to put people to death for, doing, for lighting the incense in an inappropriate right, order of things, it seems like he cares. Now, does he care about that more than he actually cares about our hearts? No. But my, this is, is God different? Does he care that we come and offer strange fire, as it says in Leviticus? They offered strange fire, and the Lord put them to death. He doesn't want strange fire. He doesn't want you, like, you know what we should do this week? Forget church on Sunday morning. Let's, have, let's go down and serve at the food bank, because that's what Jesus would do. And Jesus is in heaven going, where did they get this idea? Right now, no, go down to the food bank. But how about Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday? Why are you doing this on my day? When you need to renew covenant with me. Right? If, if, <laughs> just imagine. All right, we're going to do the creed, and guess what? Joel and I just put a bunch of doctrines into a hat and pulled them out one at a time and wrote it down in the order in which we pulled them out, and now that's our new creed. Okay? Not that, that seems like sometimes the kind of weird thing a Serious C church would do, but it's not. We would never do that. That would be very strange. And, and if we started doing things like that, you should probably find another church. It's going to go out on the record. We don't just make up whatever we want. Now, what's difficult about this, the regulative principle, you either are a strict person when it comes to this or you're wise. Notice what I did there. Because a strict person would say, okay, we must have a chapter and verse explicit command to do whatever we're going to do in the service. And these people exist. I'm sure maybe some of you have met them, right? Everything we're going to do from start to finish we have to have a, you have to be able to tell me the chapter and the verse and the exact command. The problem with that is, right, I'm just going to read a list of things that there is no express command. This is a way of interpreting the Bible, reading the Bible, that is unhelpful. Because there are lots of commands in the Bible, there's lots of examples in the Bible, there's lots of ways to learn from the Bible without having this, like, explicit command. But here's a list of things we couldn't do in the worship service because there's no commands for them. We have no express warrant a chapter and verse for worship services on the Lord's Day. Nowhere does it tell us to do it on Sunday. We have no warrant for women receiving the Lord's Supper, as I've mentioned before. We have no basis for a benediction at the close of the worship service. We have no grounds for singing psalms out loud. (laughs) Nowhere does it say, get together and sing psalms out loud. Right? There is a moment where it says, you know, at one point, sing them in your hearts. You know, go privately and do this. But it doesn't say get together as a group and sing them out loud. You're like, oh, well, are we going to take that out of the service then? We have no foundation for putting the pulpit in the center. 
right? So if we're going to do everything by the word of God, okay, where do I put the pulpit? Can someone get out your Bible and tell me? Can somebody get out your Bible and tell me how big the screen ought to be? Oh, they didn't have screens, right? That, it's absurd. We have no authority for translating the Psalms into metrical paraphrases. We have no reason to include baptism in the worship service. And this is what we're like, where do you include that? Do you have special services for that? Why do we do it on a Sunday? There's no, right, think about it. In the book of Acts, they're kind of baptizing here, there, and everywhere. Why is it that, right, if somebody comes to me and says, can you baptize me? I'm like, all right, pick a Sunday. Why do I do that? Where do I get the express warrant for that? We have no reason, yeah, okay, so we have no grounds for baptizing children of any age. There's no chapter and verse for that. You have to, as I demonstrated last week, make that argument, again, going through the entire book of the Bible. We have no warrant for the use of musical instruments. They talk about it, but nobody commands them. It's really funny because there are people who say there's no command for musical instruments. We, we are a psalm-only church, and then they sing psalms about playing musical instruments. Uh, this is the kind of thing all of us do. I, I, I love looking around when we sing about raising our hands, and I'm like standing there like, yeah, raise my hands. <laughs> I, I came from Mars Hill. It's really funny. I mean, just it's kind of a side note. I came from Mars Hill where I used to literally kind of dance in the, when we were singing. And then I came here, and someone who remained nameless said, oh, we, we don't do that here. <laughs> Which, you know, they were trying to teach me some decorum. But I now, like, stand with my hands in my pockets like a little kid because I'm a little worried about doing one of these, right? And now, so I love it when everybody else does it. But there's no express warrants for these things. Where do we get this idea of kneeling when we, when we confess our sins? Where does it tell us to recite the creed? I think I've made my point here. There's tons of stuff that we can't do if we're looking for a chapter and verse command. Now, the way we ought to broadly and wisely interpret from Scripture what to do in a Lord's service is what? You see examples. Well, what do people do when they run into the Lord face to face? Well, they fall down before him. Oh, okay. So when we come in here and we go from the world to the throne room of God and we see him face to face, which we do, I'll make that argument here in a second, what, what should we do then? Well, we should fall on our face, just like all the people in the Bible do. Right? Okay, so can, should, we, should we play musical instruments when we sing? Well, of course we should. Of course we should. Now, should we have a 35-piece symphony? Probably not. Should, right? I just was at a church last week, and I was thinking of you, Eric, because they have this big cage around the drum set. And I was like, man, it must rock in this place if you've got to put that cage around the drum set. There are all kinds of things in our service that we, we, we read the scriptures. We think, oh, we should, this is right and proper. This is right and proper. And what also happens with this is you get some variety. Now, I, I, was, I, I thought when I came to this church and I started getting into the CRC and I, I learned about what I'm talking about, I, I thought this is weird that they just kind of made up this way of doing it, it seemed to me. But then I read these books on the history of worship, and you know what? There's been, been no standard way of doing anything ever. Like, I def- I, again, I love history. I defy anyone to come in here and say, oh, the church is always done. You know what it always is? It's always the word of God and some praying and some singing in some order. And that's, that's like as close as you can get. For hundreds of years, one particular church and one particular language might do things in a set way. But then you go, right, you go from Germany during Luther's time to uh, a Catholic church, say, in in. Um, um, Poland, and they're doing everything completely differently. And who's right? So this is one of the things that's really funny about liturgy and worship. Is you got to actually sit and think about it because we got to be careful. I don't, I don't, I don't want to come in here offering strange fire, but also it, it's not exactly like you turn and be like, "Oh, here's the explanation." It requires wisdom. Why? Because God is raising His sons and daughters to be wise. And you have to read the scriptures and say, okay, this is the kind of stuff you do before God, and this is the kind of stuff you do not do before God. Now, the other thing that I'm going to add to this is the fact that in the scriptures, there is actually a book that tells you exactly how to worship God. It says, hey, if you're going to worship God, you're going to do this thing, and you're going to do this thing, and you're going to do this thing. It's the book of Leviticus, though. So then I run into a little problem because I read Hebrews and I think, okay, well, actually, I'm not supposed to do that anymore. So then now what do I do? Hebrews says, don't do that anymore. Well, then what do I do? Paul never tells me, right? He talks about this, that, and the other. I mean, he kind of talks about it here or there. And... But this is one of the problems with understanding how the law works. 
So the regulative principle, right, we want the scriptures to tell us how. We want to be wise and upright and search the scriptures and figure this out. But we have to include the whole Bible, especially the parts that actually tell us how to worship. But we have to do that even more wisely, because if I come in here starting wearing funny hats, right, like, the, like if you read Leviticus, you're like, oh, I'm supposed to wear this weird hat with this plate on my forehead that says, uh, I am the Lord's. Okay, now I'm gonna, everybody's got to wear this hat because we're the priesthood of all believers, right? If you start doing that, you're going the way that Paul says not to go in the book of Hebrews. But what we have to now understand, here's my other theological thing that I want to explain, is general equity theonomy. I, I know, I'm sorry. I read these books for you guys. I'm just going to explain it. General equity theonomy. Everyone say that with me. Okay. In the tradition of law... Okay, in the history of law, it's called um, common law. We don't write down every conceivable law. Well, the King County is trying to do it. I've, I've told this before. There was a, I, when I worked at King County in the courthouse, there's this room where I would eat that was quiet, where there was nobody. This is the law library. Nobody ever seemed to go in there. And there was a wall as big as this one. And it was law books. And all the laws of what? King County. Okay? If you go to the Old Testament, there's 616. People think God is hardcore. He only has 616. Why? Because what he wants you to do is to understand. He wants you to look at the law, say, okay, um, you're supposed to put a parapet around your rooftop. Now, do I have to put a law in the Bible, God is thinking to himself, about personal liability in every particular case? No. What does he do? He tells you, hey, if you have a flat roof, you know, you know what you got to do is you put a fence on it. Why? You don't want people falling off. Okay, so then now he doesn't have to tell me what to do with a car and do with a barbecue and do with knives. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't have to t- explain to me. Right? I understand personal liability. When, if I have a home, I better make sure the tiles aren't falling off of it onto people while we're sitting there. It's the same thing. And this is what general equity theonomy means. You go into the Old Testament, and some of the laws, the moral laws, like the Ten Commandments, you're like, okay, I don't ha- it's not a mystery. These are always in effect. Right? You hold these to the end of all time. There are other laws involving governments, in which there are just general principles. Okay, should, um, and in Romans 14, it actually says, let me find it here. Romans 13, 3 through 4. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Right? So we understand that when it comes to the laws in the Old Testament about should we structure ourselves exactly the way that Moses structures the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. This is part of this is these reconstructionist guys. Okay, let's just take Deuteronomy, and that is now our constitution. Okay, that's a great idea. Let's see how that works. And, and I mean, that would be terrible. Even as a Christian who loves Deuteronomy, I'd be like, I don't think so. Okay, because now I can't wear denim and cotton at the same time. I got to be careful about what I eat, right? I, I, we got to. What, what? What is this? Is the government not allowed to punish me if it doesn't use a sword, or is the sword a metaphor for something? See, this is how the law works. So, so a firing squad is just fine. You're not violating the law of God if you execute people using a firing squad, You'd, right? <laughs> Imagine at the ju- on the judge's chambers, there on the on the po- is a giant broadsword that he then chops people. I mean, that's no mayor comes down and cuts you with it. Like that's not what it means. And when we're talking about the law, this is what we have to do. We have to be very careful. You have to go into the Old Testament. And you have to read it and say, okay, is this a moral law where it's saying don't do this ever, don't commit adultery ever? There are laws like that. There are other laws like putting a parapet on your roof, where that's just teaching you a general biblical principle that you should apply whenever you have personal liability. You go to something like Romans, and it's talking about the sword that the state has. That's a general principle. The state should punish evildoers violently because a sword is, a, is an instrument of violence. And people should be terrified of the government. I, I actually truly believe that. Evil people should be terrified of the government. I, I, I want to fear the government in the ways that I ought to fear the government. And that's something that we've lost. The government is, God, is God's instrument of judging and, 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 and putting down evil people. Right? Imagine a society where I couldn't trust leaving my family at my house. We can go out and we can do business. Why? 
because there is a state and it has laws and it punishes evildoers. If you commit fraud, if you rob a bank, if you enter my home in the middle of the night, something bad is going to happen to you. And how is society going as we loosen this idea? Because I can tell you, I worked at the court. You know, you know how many people fear, fear a government these days? Not that many people. More, increasingly, it's righteous people who fear it, which is not what <laughs> the scriptures tell us to do. So this is general equity theonomy. You go back to the Old Testament and you understand, okay, there's, there, it's not a one-for-one. One. I don't have to dress like that. I don't have to worship exactly like that. What I have to do is read it and figure out what do I apply in my situation. I, I hope this is making sense. And, and so what happens is you come then to Leviticus, and in the first five chapters, God explains exactly how to worship him. him. He says, here, this is what I want you to do. And you should be able to read it and from it, draw out the basic principles that you then apply to your worship. So there were three offerings that were commonly found together. And when they were found together, they always followed a particular order. First, there was the guilt offering. Following this was the ascension offering, often misleadingly translated as the burnt offering. And third was the peace offering. Now, the guilt offering made the worshiper fit to enter the presence of God. That's what it was for. You offer up this sacrifice so that I can just come into your presence. You need to have the blood of the Lamb of God in order to even come in here. And, and the reason that you can come in here and you go before the face of God is because the blood of Christ has washed you. It's upon you. Okay? And, and so you have these different sacrifices, and, and you can start to see how we apply them. In the Old Testament, it was always these three in this order, and it informs us how to worship. You have to deal with your guilt before you come before the face of God. The second offering, the worshiper ascended to God in the smoke of an offering that was entirely consumed on the altar. And the peace offering was a tangible demonstration that God had received the worshiper and was willing to share fellowship with him in a common meal. So you had these three. One that brings you in to the presence of God. One that it burns up the entire animal, and what, what, what was above the throne of God was a pillar of smoke. So as you burn the animal, the animal becomes smoke, and is, becomes part of the pillar of fire, pillar of smoke, that is the Lord God. It becomes one with God, entirely. You burn the whole thing. Then you have a peace offering where you sit down and you have a meal together. And that is what, essentially, the offerings were in the Old Testament. And you can see that each one does something different. Now, we know, of course, that in the New Testament, the sacrifices of animals is done away with. The sacrificial patterns undergird all the new covenant worship that we do. This is why we do what we do. We have a biblical warrant for it. We're not just making this up as we go. We we have an offering that brings us into the presence of God. We have a portion of the service that consumes us entirely. We have a portion of the service in which we sit down and we have a meal with the Lord. And this language is very important. See, because we... We, we hear sacrifice, and we, right, when we hear the word sacrifice, we either think of Old Testament sacrifice that is done away with, or we think of D-Day. Those men sacrificed a great deal. So when we hear something like Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And I've heard this applied in the sense of, like, go and die to yourself. Sacrifice yourself, like guys on D-Day. Put yourself to death in order to serve God. Okay, chapter 12 of Romans, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, this word sacrifice, what they're thinking, what what Paul is calling out here, is that you ought to consider your life in light of Leviticus, you ought to be offering yourself as a sacrifice. And you think, well, wait, um, how do I do that? Well, you're in Christ. Can you come before the face of God? You can. So there's, there's a guilt offering. Should you devote yourself entirely to him? Oh, yes. So, so that's the whole burnt offering. Okay, do you have peace with him? When you sit down, do you give thanks over the food that you're about? Yeah, because it all comes from him. And so we're supposed to live out these sacrifices in, in, in reality. I'm concerned about my friend, and so I'm going to go before the face of God. Why? Because of the, the offering that Christ made, the sacrifice that he made. 
And so I'm supposed to offer my whole life up in, in these combination of sacrifices. I'm supposed to live this way. I'm supposed to go before his face. I'm supposed to be all, all consumed with this. I'm supposed to have peace with him. And what Paul wants here is not just, he's not just using some general sense of sacrifice like a soldier. He's talking about these sacrifices. He's talking about the ones in Leviticus. Now, this is a lot of, this is a lot of stuff, okay? General equity theonomy, my goodness. Apply the law in a wise way. That's another way of saying it. Now, what I want to do at this point is finish up with explaining the actual portions of our service. Why do we do what we do when we're here? This is the question from the start. Well, now what we realize is we're told by God what to do. Well, where are we told by God what to do? Leviticus, amongst other places. Okay, there's these, uh, these sacrifices that we're supposed to apply, and, and it's supposed to prepare us to live our everyday lives, according to Paul. Now, I'm going to add to this the fact what, what C.S. Lewis calls the liturgy. And, and there's a little book called Letters to Malcolm, in which he pretends to write letters to a college friend where they're having this debate. So it's really funny because you only read C.S. Lewis's side of the argument. So he's, as he's going, he's telling you the other guy's argument and his argument. It's a very clever way to write a book. And in there, he, he calls the liturgy a dance. And, and, and he was an Anglican, so there's a very strict way of doing the liturgy. And, and he said when you're a new... Uh, new to it, you're counting your steps like when you're learning to dance. So you're not really dancing when you're counting your steps, right? It's, it's when you forget the steps altogether and you're just entering into the dance the way that it's supposed to be. This is what the worship service is supposed to be like. Why? Because you want to dance with the one you love. We, we want the great, um, Calvin called the, the cosmos, the great dance of the stars, and who are they dancing with? Their creator. He, he, he called um, the, the Trinity, the, this dance, right? The, the, this dance idea comes into theology in several places. The Father, the Son, right? One's descending, one's ascending. They're sending the Spirit out. And it's, there's all this movement. It's a God in motion. And, and, and it's beautiful. And this is, this is what we think of when we think of the worship service. We're, we're in motion, right? You stand, you kneel, you sit, you raise your hands, you sing. You do all these different things. And, and what, what you're not supposed to be doing is counting the steps. You're supposed to just be entering this dance. And, and I think for most of you, you understand exactly what I mean by this. Some of you, when you describe your, how it feels when you're here on Sunday morning and you're worshiping, it feels like you're dancing with the one you love. And, and, and that is what's going on through this whole thing, is, is we, the elders, on behalf of God, are doing things on his behalf, and you guys are responding to them. That's why we say, Christians, what do you believe? How do you respond? Joel, in, at the start, calls us in. What, what do we do? We come to our seats, right? There's, there's a dance going on, and it's supposed to be beautiful, and it's supposed to fill us with all those feelings you get when you're dancing with the one you love. Now, here are the portions. First, we start with a call to worship. Now, an elder of the church, on behalf of Jesus, summons and welcomes us to the throne room of God. And, and this is that, we go back to that, you're worshiping in spirit and truth. Because you think, well, I'm in a, like, this used to be a goodwill. You guys know that? If you go outside and you look at it, this awning used to be blue, it looks like a goodwill. Now, how is this former goodwill, right, with the missing strip of carpet, the throne room of the living God? Okay, this is, this is what, one thing that we're constantly talking about. This is why it requires faith. This is why it requires the spirit. This is why it requires understanding the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 to 24, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So that sets it up. That's what you're doing. You're called into the throne of God in which the blood that speaks better things than the blood of Abel washes us again, brings us before the face of God, wholly consumes us. We become nothing and he becomes everything and we have peace and we, have, and we feast with the Lord. This is what you're being called to. And, and, and what's amazing here is you're doing it with all the saints throughout time. So right now, we are with all the saints who are not only meeting right now our time zone, but all time zones in all times. And we're joined with the angels in heaven. And, and we're not in, in a former goodwill. We're in the throne room of God. Now, what, 
Now, we go back to the sacrifices. What do you need to do if you're going to come before the face of God? You better wash. You better wash. And that's why we go from this beautiful call and this entrance into the throne room of God into the confession of sin because we have to wash up. We have to cleanse ourselves because we're not just standing here in this strip mall. We're standing before the very face of God. This, this is the sin offering in Leviticus, the, the guilt offering. Now, as we are ushered into the presence of God, we are made painfully aware of our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of our people. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, let's look at how some people responded when they came before the face of God. And this is what we need to be thinking about when we, when we first come near to the throne of God, when, when Joel first calls us in. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So it's prostration. There's a realization that I am not God, that I am guilty, that I am dirty, that I am a sinner. Ezekiel 128. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now, in the book of Revelation, this is not a metaphor. The throne of God is, is surrounded by a rainbow. Why? Because when he looks out a whole cosmos, what he sees is his promise not to destroy it. And so this person is clearly, in Ezekiel, he's come before the very throne of God. And does he, does he jauntily come in there and be like, yeah, woo? Right? Your retainers are here, the Lord God. You can now start the party, because I am here. No. When he comes before the rainbow, when he comes before the throne of God, he, he says, woe is me, and falls down, prostrate. Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, John, in the book of Revelation, this is partially why so many people misunderstand it, he's taken up into heaven, and he sees a bunch of things in heaven that he writes down. He's, he's worshiping on the Lord's day. That's what it says in, in Revelation chapter 1. And he's carried up into heavens and sees the whole revelation, sees this whole vision, and he writes the whole thing down. And when he realizes who he's standing before, he falls down. This is the right response as we encounter the holiness of God, as he summons us before his presence. We come boldly, but we don't come arrogantly. We come humbly. We come gratefully. We come seeing his goodness and our badness. And then what happens? We confess our sins, and, and, and what is read for us is a portion of the Gospels telling us that we are forgiven, that the blood of Christ covers us, that we are no longer uh, should feel guilt and shame and condemnation, but we are restored. And then we move to the next section, what's called consecration. And this covers the ascension offering, as I mentioned before, where the whole animal is consumed. And this part takes up the largest portion of our service. It's a bunch of different things altogether. God, by means of his word and spirit, cuts us open, rearranges us, sets us right, as the word is declared aloud, and lights us on fire. And you see the church of Pentecost. You see there. We are... Right? The word of God is, is a knife that cuts us. He chops us up and deals with us and, and, and exposes us and instructs us. And all of that is rearranging us. We're being remade. And then we're lit on fire. And we're, and we're consumed through this whole section. We respond by reciting creeds of our faith based on the revelation of God. Then we offer up our prayers and petitions. And then we give ourselves um, to him so that he can work upon our hearts in the sermon. So this is not simply a time to receive the information of a lecture. So we respond with amens. We, we respond with singing. We respond with rejoicing. Because we're being remade. We're being consumed. We're being, our self is being taken away, and Christ is being put into us. And that's what happens. When you rise up from your, from your confession, that whole section now is what you enter into, is the portion where you're being utterly remade. We are devoted entirely to him. And then we have communion, a peace offering, because peace is, has been declared between us and God. Christ is not re-sacrificed in, in any way in the Lord's Supper. There is no veneration of the elements, but by the Spirit, we really do partake of Christ's body and blood. We don't, work, we don't, we don't pray to bread, right? Oh, bread. No, we pray to God. Where is the sacrifice now? The once-for-all sacrifice. He's sitting in heaven, and we cry out to him, and we, and we call him... Right? We, we, we see that he is here with us. 
and we, have, and we have a meal with him because there's peace between us. And then we close with commissioning. Now, if you see here, right, call to worship, confession of sin, consecration, communion, and commissioning. Look at that. They all start with C's. Now, they didn't do that in Latin. This is just one of those beautiful things that happened, worked itself out in English. But this is the way that you remember it. Call, confession, consecration, and communion. In Christ, we are, all, we are given to the Father, and he is given to us. And then we close with commissioning, this benediction that I say at the end. Go out and do thus. Right Now you can do it. I tell you the word of God and what he instructs you to do because you've been cleansed and you can go and do it now. And I, and I bless you in the name of the Lord and I send you out into the world. And that's the point. That's the point. You're, the covenant has been renewed. You are, again, reestablished firmly in Christ upon his promises. The, the covenant that's cut in his blood is declared again over you. Your, his name rests upon you again. And all of this prepares you to go out into the world and, and to live out the Great Commission. In Adam, you were as far from God as that you can possibly, as far as the east is from the west, as deep as the oceans. You were as far from God as the end of the cosmos. And what, what he did was he made all of these covenants of grace and promise and said, I'm going, though you couldn't be further from me, I'm going to make you as near to, nearer to me, so near to me, that we are going to be one flesh. We are going to be one and so he, he makes these covenants of promise. He cuts them in blood. He, they are for us and for our household. And every week when we come here, that's what we're celebrating. We're reciting it again to ourselves. We're, re, we're rejoicing in it. We're feasting upon it. So covenant, this whole series, has not been about some hobby horse idea like, oh, look at the reform guys popping off about covenant again. You don't have a relationship with the living God apart from it. And what does it include? It includes nothing but promise and grace to you and your children. It's cut in the blood of Christ in every week. Every week. This is my biggest argument against taking holidays too seriously. Okay? Christmas is awesome. We should do it. Easter, let's have at it. Okay? But every week is a holiday. Every week we go and we celebrate not, a, not just a birthday, right? not just the descent of God, but the ascent of God, the work of God. Every week we celebrate the greatest thing that has ever happened, and that is the new covenant in Christ's blood cut, that, that he cut in his own blood for us, that we might draw near to him. Once a year? No. right? You don't just make a covenant when you come out of the baptism waters, and that's it. You come in here and you renew it every single week. Why? So that you can live this way constantly, so that you know that you have a guilt offering that brings you before the face of God, that you are wholly consumed by him, that you are diminishing and he is increasing, and that you have peace with him. There is a table for you set amongst your enemies, and you, you are feasting on it constantly. This is supposed to show you every week. Let me tell you again who you are and who he is and the relationship that you have and the nature of the life that you're living. And, and our God is so weird that we, we demonstrate all of this glory by going to a former goodwill and singing at a wall. And, and, I, and I say it, it's funny, when you actually stop and think about what you're doing. But, but, but how far do you have to penetrate further into what you're really doing? Right? When Joel says, come, he's not just telling you to be quiet and it's time to start. You're transitioning from this earth to heaven. You're transitioning from standing simply before one another to standing before the living God. And you're entering into this dance, and you're supposed to be comforted, and you're supposed to feel love, and you're supposed to feel security, and you're supposed to feel all the things you feel when you dance with one that you love. This is your inheritance. It is for you and for your children. And, and this is why the worship service ought to be something that we're getting ready for all week. I, years ago, I learned some very hard lessons about this. Because it would surprise us every week. Oh, it's Sunday again? I never thought that was going to happen. 
right? And you're like, oh, where are my, sh- my, my shoes aren't polished? Where's my tie? Well, how come the kids don't have any clean dress shirts, right? Does this ever happen to you guys? It's like Sunday's like a big surprise, like a bear trap at the end of the week. <laughs> and, but once you start thinking about what is going on here, the whole rest of your life starts to shift and focus very differently. And, and one of the ways we don't get caught off guard by this service is that we have something called the Lord's Dinner. And on Saturday night, because if you go to Genesis, it says the evening and the morning were the first day because the day actually begins in the evening. So we're not caught off guard on Sunday morning because we started celebrating the Lord's Day on Saturday night. And this has radically changed the way that we do the Lord's Day. It's completely changed. Everybody goes to sleep knowing where we're going, what we're doing, how we're living. And then what you start to do is, okay, well, now if you're going to be ready for that on Saturday, that's a big deal. So now you start to get ready for it on Friday, okay? And, and, and it's like you start to think about your week and what you're doing. Because if you wait till Saturday and you're like, man, I've been off track all week, and now I've got to go before God, and you, you start to have issues in your own heart and mind about what you're doing. Can I go there? Oh, I've got to go there again. Look at how beautiful it is outside, right? But we have to start thinking about this as the center of our lives, uh, I, I, one of my Ukrainian friends, I was talking to him, and he, he had a beautiful gaffe that I've stolen now. He said, enjoy your warship tomorrow. He put war instead of were. I like warship. That's good. We're going, it's warfare. Right? That's what Doug Wilson always calls it. Why? Because we're, we're taking the blood of Christ, and we're fighting the sins in our own hearts. We're fighting the sin and the darkness and the death in, the, in this world. That we're fighting the good fight. And, we, and, and we're declaring the word of God and making disciples of the nations. That's what we're doing here. And it's not just this thing that, oh, look, there it is. It's the thing that we should be thinking about all week. It, when we're reading our, our, our Bible at home, when we're praying at home, when we're doing these things at home, it's even to practice to come here. Because then what you do is you come here and you practice this beautiful dance that you then go out and, you, and, it, and it shapes your affections in your life all the rest of the week. We are not a social club. We're not. We're not just this group of people that get together once a week and, and do this stuff that we don't really understand <laughs> for, for reasons we don't really clearly can't really articulate. You are the household of God who lives before the face of God. Who, the blood of the living God dwells upon you. His name dwells upon you. You are his and he is yours. You and your children. And, and that is what we're here to celebrate. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord's Day. We thank you for the service. We thank you for your goodness and kindness and your grace and your promise to us, Lord God. We pray that as we go from here that we will be shaped and molded by what we, by this beautiful dance um, from this morning. That it would shape our affections, that it would shape our hearts and our minds, that we would go from here, that we would know, Lord, that you are indeed Emmanuel. You are the God with us. We dwell before your face. You are ours and we are yours. And, and this is sweet, and it is delightful. And may we, Lord, contemplate these things and meditate upon them, Lord, and, and understand them better and, and get excited and, and share our whole week around this time with you. In the Lord's name we pray, amen.